Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grody, your host for this program. Thank you for joining me on Deep in Scripture. Uh, we're coming to you over EWTN Radio, and I'm speaking to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International in Ohio. And uh, I want to thank you for joining us. This is the, the day before Thanksgiving, and uh, it's a good time for us to be appreciative of everything that we've received in life. There's not a thing that we haven't received that hasn't come to us through the grace of God. Uh, and and let's, let's say that those, those negative things in our life, uh, those things that God has allowed to happen in our life, they're there often to shape us and to draw us closer to Him, to get our attention off of ourselves. And so in that sense, we turn in thankfulness to our Father and say, thank you, uh, help me to deal with the struggles of life, but they're there to help me grow in holiness. And so that's a part of our thanksgiving. We're thanking God for all aspects of our life. On this program, I invite guests to join me to choose a verse they, they particularly like and would like to talk about. And today we're having as our guest Father J. Scott Newman. Father Newman, is uh, he's been on the Journey Home program. If you watch the Journey Home on EWTN, you've, you've heard Father Newman as well as maybe other times that he's appeared on EWTN. Father Newman was born in Elkham, North Carolina, to a family of Southern Baptists and brethren. I don't think he, though, caught the faith. I, he might want to correct me as I summarize his journey, but it turns out that during his journey of faith as he <clears throat> went into Princeton University, he went in there not particularly as a believer. And in 1981, after five years of atheism, he was converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, baptized in Episcopal Church in 1982, received full communion in the Catholic Church, though, on November 1982. So within that year, he made the journey from atheism to the Episcopal Church and then the continual journey on into the Catholic faith. Uh, he studied at Princeton as well as Catholic University of America uh, and then received his undergraduate degree from Belmont Abbey College near Charlotte, North Carolina. He studied in Rome for the priesthood and was ordained to the diaconate in 1992 at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican City, Rome, and then to the priesthood on July 1993 at the Cathedral Church of St. John, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the Baptist in Charleston, South Carolina. And he... Uh, there's lots there you can find more about Father Newman at the deepinscripture.com website. His, his biography is listed there. He um, uh, is the, let's see, I'm trying to remember the name of his parish. I've been down there, down in, uh, in uh, uh, Charleston. Um, when I get him on, I'll make sure he corrects me because uh, I'm, I'm just it's, I'm having a mental blank right now on exactly his parish. He, I will say that he also taught at a school that I taught at briefly, and that's the Josephinum uh, in Columbus. Uh, he's also taught at the University of the Virgin Islands and Thomas More College in the Citadel. So Father Newman comes to us with a, a large background in Scripture. <clears throat> he also understands the issue of conversion. And when I ask the guests to choose verses that deal with this issue of conversion, drawing us closer to Christ, maybe verses that are particularly helpful, he chose for today a, uh, a pair of scriptures that, uh, that help us understand each of these 
sections of Scripture. The first is um, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And then the next section is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 28 through 36. And before I read those, I just want to remind you that we'd love to have a phone call or an email from you if you'd like to make a comment or a question about anything we discussed today. The phone number is 800-664-5110, or you can also call us at 740-450-1175, or you can send me an email at marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at deepinscripture.com. Let me read you these two passages, and then Father Newman will join us after the break. The the underlying scripture from the gospel is a familiar one. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 28 through 36. And as I read this, I want you to hear the words that refer to um, uh, uh, freedom and truth and, and how these connect with the Hebrew passage. Um, let's, this will be John 6, 28 through 36. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. That's John 6. And then the passage from Hebrews, which Father wanted us to focus on. Hebrews 5. <clears throat> For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. And one does not take the honor upon himself, but he is called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. As he says also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Do not forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. 
friends. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Gerdeis' book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Gerdeis' book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Thank you for joining us today. I'm going to make a little correction. I just noticed this um, as I was reading the passages, this happens sometime, of course, when uh, you, uh, a number is misread, and I p- actually posted one of the the wrong verses on the website, and uh, maybe I better read it. In fact, Father, are you there? Yes, Marcus. I, I want to make sure I got you right there. Uh, you were probably listening to me as I read the John passage, and I was reading from the wrong chapter. Is that right? That's right. We're meant to be in chapter 8, not chapter 6, but that was my fault. My original email to your staff gave the wrong chapter number. So let me read. Um, should I read verses 28 through 33 or so? Just just 31 and 32 will do for right now. Okay. Because I want to make sure the audience, uh, especially those that don't have a Bible in front of them, uh, right. know the, the, the focus of our discussion. This is John 8. 31 through 32 as the gospel background for our discussion today. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Which is interesting because that does follow on from the John 6 passage anyway. Which It does. <laughs> well, anyways, how are you, Father? I'm fine, thank you, Marcus. And to answer your question, my parish is St. Mary's. That's right. And we are in the Diocese of Charleston, but we're in the city of Greenville. There you go. That's Way right. up in the hill country of South Carolina. Well, I'm glad you corrected me on that. I, I've been there, and it's a beautiful place. And, uh, and what's really wild for the audience that may understand the significance of this uh, is that it's in the shadows of Bob Jones University, uh, which means you are truly in the Bible Belt as a Catholic fighting many battles, but yet with good folk, right? The, the buckle of the Bible Belt, we like to say. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I did mention on the opening that this is, you know, we're close to Thanksgiving, and so there's a theme there that doesn't have to be the theme of the passages by any means. But but let me ask you this. Uh, you, you, you chose these passages. They're big sections maybe before we jump into them with both feet, in, in a general way, why do you like these particular scriptures? Well, the text from the Gospel, which I have used as, as a personal um, motto, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, since the time of my conversion, the truth will make you free. Uh, this, w- this text was foundational for me when I was um, making the move from atheism to faith in the Lord Jesus, and then from Protestant Christianity to Catholic Christianity. It's the overriding question of what is true 
And how can we know the truth? And what demands does the truth make upon us? And what are the consequences of either accepting the truth or refusing the truth? So that's the reason this, this verse is of such uh, personal importance to me, because there was a time in my life when I was sincerely convinced God does not exist. Yeah, that, that still fascinates me, uh, Father Newman, because even though I went through a period of about three years in college where I didn't go to church and I was being drawn into scientific materialism and, <coughs> and believed that I could explain everything through science, I didn't need a God, yet I'm sure in my heart of hearts I still believed that God was there based on my Lutheran upbringing. But I can't imagine what it is really like to live and to breathe and to believe that there is no creator, that there is no purpose. Is that where you were for those four or five years? Yes, absolutely. Wow. Um, and, and it was the result of uh, uh, attempting to embrace uh, a worldview that, as you described it, is scientific materialism. That is, a belief that everything that is is quantifiable, measurable, observable, that there is nothing beyond the natural world, nothing supernatural, in other words, mm -hmm. and that the existence of the cosmos and everything in it, including us, could be accounted for without a personal designer and maker. And, um, you know, that, that worldview, if I may call it that, is subscribed to by most of the people, I believe, in the chattering classes of our society. That is to say, in the universities, in journalism, in entertainment. Um, even if they haven't thought it through from beginning to end, that's their default setting. That's the place in which they begin to think about human life and how they should lead their own lives and how we should organize our common life. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a world without an absolute horizon. It's a world without an eternal future. It's a world without moral meaning other than that which is created by each person for himself. You know, you could take that verse, John 31, 32, and take it out of its context. And you could, in a sense, use that as a, a marching orders for the words of, let's say, any professor in this world that you just described. Right. And they could be saying to their students, if you continue in what I've taught you, mm -hmm. then you are truly my disciples. In other <laughs> words, exactly. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Would you have believed in your atheistic background that that's what you were discovering as you followed your mentors? Well, you see, there is a paradox because uh, one of the cornerstones of modern thought is a questioning of authority and the assertion that no one can be authentically himself and truly free uh, while taking anything on the authority of another. Huh. That uh, we have to question everything, uh, most especially authority, and that we take nothing... Um, because another tells us it is so. And, and so, uh, for philosophical reasons as well as for practical reasons, there is a, a predisposition um, 
theoretically to say we reject all authority. And yet even professors who hold to that philosophical position expect their disciples, their students, mm -hmm. to follow their lead. <laughs> um, which is one of the things that I discovered at Princeton. I thought I was going into a world of um, uh, rational discourse, and the, tr the triumph of scientific reason, and of course what I found was um, uh, conformity to the collapsed uh, mores of a co-ed undergraduate culture, um, and the assumption by most of the professors that we would take their word for truth, no matter what they said. Now you could almost, uh, let me ask you this, let me rephrase that verse into that culture, as I remember my own experience that I went to Case Institute up in Cleveland, which was, you know, there are no, at least in, the, in Case Institute, the scientific schools, so there are no religion classes unless you go right. across the street over to Western Reserve, but still it was scientific materialism university. Uh, but I, I could rephrase this verse in that context. If you continue in my teaching, you are truly my disciples, and you will discover that there is no such thing as truth. Exactly. And you will truly then be free. Was and that the that, message that there, you had received? Th this is why this verse is, is, is of such importance to me, because that proposition leads to what Benedict calls the dictatorship of relativism. When there is no truth beyond our minds, when there's only truth of our making, and therefore there is no the truth, just your truth and my truth, then what we find is um, all that's left in, in any arrangement of public life is the will to power, the tyranny of a majority, the dictatorship of relativism. Mm -hmm. And so when I encountered this text in the Bible for the first time, when I was uh, a 19-year-old undergraduate, it was a startling thing uh, that the Lord Jesus proposes to us that there is a truth, that he is that truth, and that our obedience to this truth is the very guarantee of our freedom. Now, that's a shocking claim to most modern people, mm -hmm. but it's shocking to those who heard him say it. And that's why, when I suggested this text, I expanded it to beyond these two verses. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, to whom? To the Jews. He's talking to a group who regard themselves as religious men who are seeking to know the will of God. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you, and by the way, there are many ways of translating what comes next, uh, most modern translations put it, if you continue in my word. Mm -hmm. uh, another way of saying it is, if you abide in my yes. word. Which I, I particularly like, because that connects with the other passages in John. That's right. Yeah. If, if you live in my word, if you dwell in my word, you are truly my disciples, my students, which is what the word disciple means. And you will know the truth. It's a conditional statement. If you live in my word, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. Now notice, these are Jews who have believed in him. These are not his enemies. And yet he's making an assertion that even they find difficult to accept. We are the children of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And here's then 
the complementary verse. Amen, amen, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And here is where the modern mind misses the boat. Mm -hmm. Because in the political realm, freedom means the absence of restraint from anyone's will outside of myself. We make all too often the false assumption that this is the only path to freedom, and that I can't be free, I can't be autonomous, as long as anyone is telling me what's true, what's good, what's evil, that I have to be the sole arbiter of these things for myself. But that's the temptation of the father of lies offered to our first parents. Eat of the, of the forbidden the fruit of the forbidden tree, and you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. What Jesus is proposing is the undoing of that lie. It's only when we are obedient to the truth that we find freedom from the cruelest slavery of all, which is slavery to our own disordered self-love, sin. So in the teaching of Jesus, authentic freedom is not possible apart from perfect obedience. You know, there's a a part of this passage uh, that as I'm looking at it, I'm reminding of of a time when I had been studying this passage and I wanted to have, wanted to go deeper into a question that arose in my mind and I didn't get a chance to see it through. So you might <clears throat> have looked at this, Father Newman, but it's interesting that it seems to imply a problem that also exists today is that there's an awful lot of people, particularly outside the Catholic Church, that are ignorant of their history. And because they're ignorant of history, or at least blind to it, or blinded themselves to it, it makes them impotent to hear the fullness. Because I've always found it funny that they claim that they've never been in bondage to anyone. Right. And if you know Jewish history, they certainly were oh, in bondage. Right. I mean, in Egypt, excuse me, don't you know your salvation history, you want to scream? Well, you know, don't you know why? In fact, you can see Jesus. I don't know that he was thinking this, but, you know, there's a sense in which, wait a second, don't you people know your background? Don't you know the, the whole history and the reason you are today under Rome? But they're saying, we've never been a bondage to anyone. Well, it reminds me of people today that just don't think about the background of their faith or the, the history of our faith or why we believe the things we do. And as a result, they can be blindly drawn into inaccurate truth. We've seen this played out in recent weeks in public with Representative Patrick Kennedy and the Bishop of Providence, the Most Reverend Thomas Tobin. Mm-hmm. Kennedy asserting that there's no contradiction between his public support of abortion and his profession of the Catholic faith, and his bishop reminding him, yes, there is a contradiction. (laughs) You cannot be a Catholic and say publicly or privately that abortion is acceptable. And if you say those things, then you are demonstrating that you are no longer in full communion with the Catholic Church. Uh, and, And the bishop quite pointedly uh, reminded Mr. Kennedy that he was ignorant yep. of the truth of the Catholic teaching and that he had a responsibility uh, to educate himself, to understand what it is 
the church into which he was baptized believes and teaches. And sometimes when people are ignorant of of the history, ignorant meaning not stupidity, but they just don't have the data, sometimes they're invincibly ignorant because of the where they were brought up or or how they were brought up or they, their formation, and that's up to God and his mercy. On the other hand, if you're going to go into into public office and you're going to take a stand and and claim to be a representative not only of the government and your people, but of your faith. Right. You better know what you're talking about. Exactly. And uh, that's the, exactly the incident you referred to. We're going to take a break, Father. When we get back, a couple things. Number one, also, you also chose the Hebrews passage. We'll talk a bit about that connection. But also, it is interesting as we look at this particular passage, if you continue in my word, Jesus says, how do we know what he meant by my word? And when we get back, let's talk a little bit about that. Good. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Father J. Scott Newman, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled, Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. I'm joined today by Father J. Scott Newman, and he's uh, looking at John chapter 8, verses... 31 through 32, the little wider context there, as, all, as well as uh, we're looking at Hebrews. Let me see if I can get it up. I'm sure it's on the website correctly. Yes, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 through 10. Before the break, Father, I posed two questions to you. I didn't, wasn't sure which one you wanted to jump into first. Well, let's go back to the question of word. Okay. Uh, let's remember where we are. We're in John's Gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how does John's Gospel begin? In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So right from the beginning, the prologue of the Gospel, John is laying out the relationship between the eternal Word of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate Word the Son of Mary, who is the Son of God, and the truth, which is the grace of God's glory in the Lord Jesus. Word, Son, truth. So when we come to this verse in chapter 8, 31, with the Lord saying, if you 
abide in my word, there's already uh, a strong foundation in the text for understanding mm-hmm. the field of meanings implied by this one simple word, logos. In the beginning was the word. This is the, the, the single word uttered by the Father from all eternity that brings into being all that is. This is the word that in the fullness of time, by the power of the Holy Spirit, takes flesh of the Virgin Mary. And now, the word made flesh is preaching the gospel with his own lips. This is his word, his gospel. Uh, And it is the, if you will, the sum total of all that God has revealed for our salvation. So by that simple phrase, my word, the Lord means his entire saving doctrine, Mm -hmm. Uh, all of divine revelation, the eternal plan of salvation, finally and fully revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What I find as a fascinating thought, Father Newman, is, okay, so this, given that very powerful message in John 8.31, a promise, right? If right. you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. All right. Now, we have a loving Father who desires that all will be saved. And come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what we have, that Father. So, how do we understand this passage, not only in the year, whatever this was, 30 A.D. or whatever, when Jesus is saying this, but how do we understand this in the year 300 A.D., the year 800 A.D., the word 1300 A.D., 1800 today? Sure. In other words, how does a person know the word of Jesus Christ so that they can continue in it? Well, here we come to the relationship between the Lord Jesus and the Bible. Um, one of the 16 documents of the Second Vatican Council in, in many ways, the most important is Dei Verbum, Latin meaning the Word of God, mm-hmm. the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, which reminds us that every word of sacred scripture is inspired by God and contains no uh, error in faith and morals, that it is um, the Word of God written in human language containing everything that we must know and do to be saved. So the word of Jesus is, first of all, contained in Holy Scripture, which means both the Old and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is uh, Jesus, the eternal word, long before the incarnation of Jesus, the son of Mary, speaking to the human race in the words of the prophets, the law. So the Old and the New Testament together are the inspired and infallible word of God, and that's the first place we look to know the word of Jesus. Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. Uh, But we know, too, that not everything the Lord said from his own lips was written down. And so we have from the apostolic age uh, the transmission of the saving doctrine of Jesus alongside of sacred scripture, which the Church calls sacred tradition, the handing on of all that he gave to the Twelve and to Paul is handed on to the next generation and the next, and together, sacred scripture and sacred tradition constitute what Dei Verbum calls a single divine deposit of faith. And this is the word of God, the gospel, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, 
which is not human wisdom, but divine revelation. The saving truth, the eternal plan of salvation made known to us so that we can be free. And, and you bring us to this important question because in this passage, if you continue, or as you said, abide in my word, if we recognize that by my word he is at least including in that apostolic tradition as well as the scriptures, or as Paul would say in Second Thessalonians, the oral and written right. tradition. Um, there's another passage that Jesus said in John 15, which is similar to this, verse 7, in which Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that word for abide is the same word here. Right. Jesus said, ask whatever you will, and it shall be done to you. Now, the point is, okay, I've got sacred tradition, and I've got this written book that's laying before me. For some people, that might symbolize, on the one hand, a catechism laying on one end of a coffee table, and on another end of the coffee table, you've got the Bible. All right. But the concept is, how can I know that I am abiding in this? Or am I just reading into it what I want it to say? Well, the, the, the first thing to be said is the texts have to be open. It's not enough for the parish priest or, the, or the, the religious woman who taught you catechism in the second grade to know the scriptures. Every single Catholic, every Christian, needs a direct personal encounter with the Word of God in sacred scripture. This, this can't be emphasized mm-hmm. enough. One of the unfortunate consequences of the of the 16th century schism is that all too many Catholics think of the Bible as something for Protestants. I tell the people here at my parish, it's like a nasty divorce. You get the kids, I'll get the dog. You get the house, I get the car. Protestants got the Bible, Catholics got the sacraments. But it can't be that way. The Lord Jesus comes to us in word and sacrament, and never one without the other. This is one of the reasons why in every administration of a sacrament, the Bible is read. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a direct personal encounter with the Word of God in Scripture, as well as a knowledge of the apostolic tradition transmitted in the Church, contained in the Catechism. That's the first step. Abiding in the Word means knowing the Word. Mm-hmm. Then it has to be lived. It's not enough to know. You know, the demons in hell know that Jesus Christ is Lord, but they don't love him and they don't serve him. So we have to, by the obedience of faith, and by the way, that's an important phrase for Paul, Mm -hmm. the obedience of faith, we have to surrender our lives to the Word and shape our lives by God's grace uh, in such a way that the Word takes flesh in us. How I live becomes... Uh, an essential quality of my abiding in the word of the Lord Jesus. And that is what, according to the word of Christ, makes us true students, true disciples, being doers of the word, not hearers only. And then, only then, as, as this conditional statement from the words of Christ puts it, do we know the truth. In other words, <clears throat> an habitual sinner finds it very difficult to know the full truth about God. The mysteries of the kingdom are not accessible 
finally and fully except to the saints. Mm-hmm. And until we've been purified of all the self-love, the disordered self-love of sin, even the intellect is darkened and we can't know the full truth about God. So it's this dual uh, abiding of knowing and doing that leads to knowledge of the truth, which is our freedom. There's um, a passage that Paul, I'm going to find it here real quickly as I'm rustling through my papers, in 2 Corinthians 7, in which he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. And the reason I thought about that is it's like this words from Jesus. He, he gave us these promises, and so he's saying, okay, and I'll abide in my word, continue in my word. And what does that mean? Well, Paul is summarizing it means, you know, as he says in many different ways, cleanse ourselves from the thin things that defile us in obedience to Jesus, and then make holiness perfect in the fear of God. In other words, abiding in him is really a surrender of all that we are. And the way that we know what that means is by being faithful in the church and listening to the teacher he gave us, the church. It's not just up, up to us individually. Right. We're part of this body and being faithful in that. Hey, Father, I got an email, and um, I thought I'd bring this up. It, it pulls us back to a discussion we had earlier in the program, uh, and it was probably a response to something that you had said as you talked about your atheistic period. But this is a question that asks, and uh, here's your thought on this. He's asking, could not a, quote, dictatorship of relativism, end of quote, actually lead to anarchy instead of a rule by the majority? Of course, and that was the warning of Pope Benedict when he first used that phrase, that... um the, the, the machinery of democracy, the procedural machinery, if you will, of elections and separated powers, executive, judicial, and, and legislative, uh, these things um, do not work automatically. They require a moral foundation in the hearts and minds of individual citizens. This is why the Founding Fathers place such an enormous emphasis on religion, mm-hmm. which had no official role in public life in the state, but which was essential to the functioning of the republic, because without the religious convictions of citizens, the machinery of democracy very quickly uh, breaks down, and anarchy can be the result. There are lots of, of countries in the world, in South America, in Africa, and Asia, where the rule of law simply doesn't exist. There's either the rule of the strong man imposing his will on everyone by the force of arms, or the rule of a mob. And uh, these examples should remind us there's no guarantee that any human society, including this one, um, remains free and well-ordered simply because of written documents like the Constitution or of institutions like uh, our free courts, uh, it requires a moral education of the citizenry. Yeah, I remember once having a, a, 
a dialogue with Charlie Rice from Notre Dame, lawyer, uh, law teacher. And we were talking about, you know, this whole democracy bit in many ways is assuming that the the voters have a formed conscience. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, I mean, any of you that are listening, especially any of you that really feel greatly confident in a democratic society coming and voting and ending up after a vote, something that's better or truer or better. I mean, those of you just think about going to any local election. I go to a local election and I'll look at the sheet and there'll be four or five people that I have to choose from that I know nothing about. I don't know who they are, what they stand for, nothing. And yet I've got you know two minutes to decide. Well, I'm not very informed. I might even see an issue on the ballot that I know nothing about because I haven't taken the time. Well, how is um, uh, five million people going to vote that way going to make sure that we always move in a direction that's good when our consciences have not been formed to discern what is good? This points to the difference between liberty and license. License is the unrestricted uh, power of doing everything I want to do. Mm-hmm. Liberty is the freedom to do everything that I should do. Um, this distinction is increasingly lost on too many Americans who believe that any restriction of their um, freedom, of their personal autonomy, is an assault on liberty. In fact, it isn't necessarily. You know, um, no one is free to shout fire in a crowded theater. Is the classic example of how we do face restrictions. Uh, the, the the rights of others, the duties imposed upon us by the public good, by our conscience, by the natural law. Uh, liberty is what we're after, not license. License is what leads to anarchy. Uh, liberty, rightly ordered. For, the, for, for a believing Christian, is the freedom of the children of God. It's the evangelical freedom described by the Lord Jesus here. Political liberty for a society is also an ordered freedom. It's ordered to the good, to the objective truth. And when people in public office or public life deny the very existence of an objective good or truth, they're undermining the very possibility of ordered liberty. That's what's at stake in the public debates right now over homosexual marriage, Uh, euthanasia, stem cell research, cloning, and, of course, abortion. Well, even the health care, just in itself. Who's going to decide how I take care of my family? Right. Who's going to have the strings to decide how I take care of my family? And, uh... I mean, these are the the big issues of today. Father, let's take another break. When I come back, I'd like us to uh, continue on also uh, with this Hebrews passage, which you chose, to talk about its connection to all that we've been talking about so far. All right? You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined today by Father Jane Scott Newman, and you're hearing us on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network.
The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined today by Father J. Scott Newman. Father, let me read just, if you would, I'll read from verse 7 through 10. Right. And uh, and then reflect on this in relationship to what we've been talking. This is Hebrews chapter 5, 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, We lose a rhyme in the English translation that's present in the Greek um, in verse 8. Son though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Learned and suffered. Mathine, pathine in the Greek. Hmm. it's the equivalent of no pain, no gain. Uh, the point here is that despite his divine glory, despite the fact that he's the eternal son of the Father, in his human flesh, surrendering himself to the will of the Father required obedience. He had to conform his will to the will of the Father. And here it's worth remembering what obedience means originally. Hearing, ob odere, to hear, to hear and heed, to hear the word of God and heed it, to shape our lives by it. This is what the Lord did himself. And what did this bring to him? Suffering. It brought him the cross. This is the struggle in in the garden. Uh, Not my will, but thy will be done. And in this, He fulfilled his purpose. He accomplished his purpose. And that's what's meant in the next verse. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It's worth noting here what this does not mean, by the way, being made perfect. In English, it sounds like um, he was made morally better, that he was lacking somehow, and that uh, the mystery of the cross... Um, made him a better man. That's not what it means in the original Greek. It means that he fulfilled his purpose. He accomplished his end. And having done that, then he becomes the instrument of the salvation of the whole human race. Uh, So there are two points to notice here. Uh, Suffering and learning are inextricably linked. And this is not just biblical wisdom. This is This is a universal truth in almost every culture that 
until we learn to deny ourselves, there are truths that we can't learn. Um, and so... You know, that's interesting that you've said it that way, because recently I was trying to think of where I was reading it, in an article in the Catholic Encyclopedia that was saying something about the the natural law, the old law, and then the new law of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And the distinction in the the difference in the old law and the new law, one of the distinctions is is that the old law, which would be the Ten Commandments as well as the other stipulations, at the core of that were natural laws that God then added positive law to, specific things. Right. And that when we move to the new law, the gospel, the positive laws, you know, the certain dietary laws and things, could the church now had the authority to, to set those aside and establish new ones? In other words, which day you're going to worship on? But the 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 part of the old law that was at the core, true of natural law. In other words, thou shalt not murder. Right, is a part of our being. The eternal law. Yes, that is a part of every one of us. And what you're saying here that there's something beneath this that is true too. This idea that we learn through our suffering has been a part of our being from the beginning, which is why Adam and Eve wanted to avoid it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and even people who don't want to face this still instinctively understand that a spoiled brat is unattractive. <laughs> when, when self-indulgence is the rule of life, uh, self-absorption is the only possible result. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, we have a whole culture that that really takes away, in many ways, parents' freedom and authority and and responsibility of disciplining children, and so we do end up training a whole world full of spoiled brats. So mm-hmm. instead of talking about self-respect, we talk about self-esteem. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Somebody he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And if this is the pattern for the Lord Jesus, it must, of course, be the pattern for us. For us. One other uh, thought that struck me as you talked about this, that historically this was one of those passages that led the church back in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries to to very insist on the aspect that we believe uh, as defined Define teaching that Christ has two natures and not just one. In other words, it doesn't have just the divine nature as taken over a human being, right. but that he truly had a human nature as well as divine nature in one person. So that we see in this passage that he truly did suffer as a part of his humanity. This is why, um, for example, at the tomb of Lazarus, he isn't play-acting when he cries. Mm-hmm. He weeps because of the real grief of losing his friend, even as he knows that he's about to restore him to life. The pain is real. Uh, the same in Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. In his divine nature, he knows perfectly that the plan of salvation will be accomplished, that the glory of the Father will be revealed and yet, in his human nature, he cannot do other than sweat blood at the prospect of the scourging on the cross. And so his model is not play-acting, as you said, 
but he truly is showing us. He's not just telling us to continue in his word. He's showing us. A man like us in all things but sin. So Hebrews continues, and being made perfect, or as I say, having accomplished his purpose, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And here we come back to the obedience of faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not enough to say, Lord, Lord. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of his Father. But only what? Those who do the will of the Father. Mm -hmm. Faith is dead without works. The obedience of faith is the completion of the act of faith, so that what I know to be true shapes the truth of my actions. We have to belong to the truth, uh, as we heard in the scripture last Sunday. We have to belong to the truth. And only in obedience, and this, this is the paradox the modern mind recoils from, Only in obedience do we find our freedom. In the political order, this is the reverse. Of course, we we want to say we we need autonomy to be free, national autonomy, personal autonomy. But in the interior life, in the spiritual life, there is no freedom apart from obedience, just as there is no learning apart from suffering. You know, it's interesting, Father, I look on this in my background uh, when I was a a Presbyterian Calvinist pastor. uh, I would have, if I had written Hebrews from my Calvinist background, I would have written that differently. I would have said, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for everyone who was chosen. (laughs) But, But this implies, no, it is up to you and to me to surrender in obedience to Jesus. Well, Father, thank you so much for joining us on this program. I hope you have a nice Thanksgiving. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. And hope to have you back on a future Deep in Scripture program because I love your wisdom and your, as well as your friendship. So thank you very much. It would be my pleasure. And all of you listening, thank you very much for joining us on this program. I hope that what Father Newman and, and I have discussed today is an encouragement to you uh, to continue in the Word of Jesus, continue in His church, being empowered by his sacraments and to live by grace to just as Jesus modeled for us to live in obedience, the obedience of love uh, that he has done for us. So God bless you. See you again next week.